Okay. So Lord, we just say a, a prayer over tonight's service and just coming together in agreement. Everybody is agreeing with me. Father, we submit this time unto you. We thank you so much, Lord, for your presence. Lord, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your faithfulness. Lord, we thank you for what you're doing. We thank you for an open heaven tonight and your glory here and everything being spoken through me that needs to be spoken, Lord. That it will be as living seed to truth sown in a good soil, watered by the Holy Spirit, taking root, growing, and producing a hundredfold harvest of eternal fruit that remains till Jesus comes. Lord, let the truth of the Word of God go out, and it'll be like a light dispelling the darkness, the washing of the water of the Word, a sword that penetrates, a mighty hammer that breaks through the darkness and destroys strongholds. And Lord, I thank you for the wind of the Holy Spirit carrying this out among the nations. It will get where it's supposed to and accomplish what it's supposed to. Lord, I thank you for everything being accomplished in and through this time. But the Bible says that your word will not return void, but go forth and accomplish that which you sent it forth to do. We stand on that promise. We submit this unto God. And the Bible says the birds of the air try to steal the seed. So we agree together anything that would try to hinder this word in any way. We bind you in the name of Jesus. We command it to go right now in Jesus' name. And I thank you for your angels just clearing all that out of the way. And that this will accomplish what you sent for it to do. We thank you for it and we believe it. We expect it in Jesus' name. So y'all just give me your best ear tonight and look this way. And, and I didn't do notes because I have a reason for not doing notes. I'm doing a lot of historical references and I just want people to give me your best ear. So tonight as we get into this, there's a couple things. Um, I'm on part five of paying the price for revival. <coughs> And tonight, I'm dealing with the battle, okay? I'm going to deal with the spiritual warfare that surrounds revival. <clears throat> I remember I'd had the honor, excuse me, <coughs> I'd had the honor to really spend some time with Steve Hill back in 2003, and at the time, he was my pastor and covering, and and, you know, sent me out to do things, and, and uh, I was planting a work out in east of where he was, out this way, actually. And um, anyway, I was able to really spend some quality time with him, and I remember asking him a lot of questions, and him speaking in my life, and praying with me, and he gave me a word, but one of the things he told me was this. He said that if, he said, listen, he said, if you're wanting to see revival, and you're wanting to see a harvest of souls. He said, make sure that you understand that if you try to take away Satan's little soldiers from him, and he said, the enemy will not sit idly by and let that happen. So there is a warfare surrounding revival and surrounding a harvest. How many knows that? The enemy's not going to just sit back idly. He will try to attack. Another thing I want to point out is Matthew 13, 39. The Bible says the end of the age is the harvest and the angels are the harvesters. So the end of the age, that's where we're at. That there is a harvest and that God would send his angels to gather the harvest. That's Matthew 13, 39. Now, the reason, and I know that in prophetic understanding of things, understanding the book of Revelation, I understand that some of that reference has to do with actually after Jesus physically touches 
the earth and is on it, the Mount of Olives, his feet touch the Mount of Olives, and he's going to send his angels to gather the elect. And I understand that. But I do believe that God is going to send forth his mighty angels to help um, enforce his will in the day that we live because of this reason. We're living in the last days and spiritual warfare is amping up and it's going to require that angels are sent to push back the tides of darkness and to break things open for revival and, and to help gather in the harvest because it's going to be a major battle to see that happen. Does that make sense? And so I do believe that God is sending his angels for that reason to enforce his kingdom purposes in the earth. What does the Bible say his kingdom purposes are in the last days regarding the church? He said, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. So we've seen a lot of that and we're about to see more. He also said that not only will I pour out my spirit, but I will get a bride ready to meet the Lord in the air. And then finally, he talks about the harvest coming in, okay? So that is God's kingdom purposes, and he will send his angels to enforce it. Now, Catherine Kuhlman, when she was talking about the price for the anointing, when she was in Jerusalem, she was talking about what will it cost to see revival? What will it cost to see the anointing in your life? She said it will cost you everything, okay? A death to self, a death to your flesh, a death to your reputation, a death to this world. It will cost you everything. So y'all, please give me your best ear focus tonight. Don't let anything distract you in any way. Matthew 20, <clears throat> starting with verse 1, Jesus talked about this, and this was a really interesting parable that I don't think a lot of times is preached. And so we're dealing with the last days, and I'm, I'm about to get into the Welsh, Welsh revival here in just a moment, but Matthew 20, starting with verse 1, it says, the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers to work his vineyard. Okay, so picture this for a moment. There's a landowner, and he has a vineyard, and he needs laborers out there working the vineyard. So he goes out early in the morning, and it says that he found some laborers, and when he had agreed with the laborers for a denarius a day, so they were to work that whole day for one denarius, he sent them out in his vineyard. They agreed to it. Now, he went out about the third hour and saw some more standing around idly in the marketplace. So the third hour is around nine o'clock. And so he said to them, why don't you go out into my vineyard? He said, why are you standing around? Why don't you go out into my vineyard and um, I'll pay you a denarius. So they went out and they agreed to this. So they started work late, a little bit later than the other guys. And then again, around the sixth hour, which is noon, and then the ninth hour, which is three, he did the same thing. He went out and found some people at noon. He found some more people at three, sent them out. And about the 11th hour, Okay, because sun, the sun set around, roughly around 6 o'clock. That's kind of the end and beginning of the next day with the Hebrew calendar and culture. So around the 11th hour, so you're dealing with about an hour before sunset. So around 5 o'clock, he went out and found some more people standing around. He said to them, 
Why are you standing here idly all day long? Because, and they said, because nobody has hired us. He said, then go into my vineyard and I'll pay you. And so when evening came, the sun had set, everybody was done. The owner of the vineyard um, was at home now and he called for his foreman. And he said, call all the laborers in so that I can pay them their wages, starting with the last group. So the ones that had only been there for about an hour, he said, them, call them in first. And so when he, those that he hired the 11th hour came to him, he gave each of them a denarius. And so when those that were hired first at the crack of dawn, um, they were angry and, and they spoke out against it and they said, um, he should give us more than he's given them because we worked all day. We, and they grumbled against the landowner. But even though they said that we had to deal with the heat of the day, we had to work all day, but the landowner said this to them. He said, friend, I'm not doing you any wrong. Did you not agree with me to work a whole day for a denarius? And did I not give you that denarius? And they said, well, yes. He said, then why are you grumbling against me just because I'm generous with my money to give these guys that didn't work as much a denarius? And so he said this, take what is yours and go but I want to give the last person the same as I did you. It is not um, unlawful for me to do so. And so he said, then Jesus said this in verse 16, he closed this parable by saying, the last shall be first and the first will be last. That is interesting, isn't it? So in these latter days that we're living, there are people that have gone before us that have labored and they have really had to bear the heat of the day. They've labored before us. They have toiled. There's missionaries. There's people that have gone on before us. But yet, interestingly enough, there's a group of people that at the 11th hour, y'all hear me, look this way and hear me. At the 11th hour, there's a group of people that God has reserved that will see the last harvest before the rapture. And they will receive the same reward as those that have toiled for a long time before that. Isn't that interesting? And I believe River of Life is one of those places that God has reserved for an 11th hour revival and harvest right before the Lord comes. Now, let me say this. There's been significant moves of God down through the ages. Now, I'm going to talk about the Welsh Revival tonight. But before I get into that, I want y'all to really catch what I'm saying here. So I know the Protestant Reformation, but that wasn't like an outpouring of the Holy Spirit so much as it was simply the Lord breaking them away from Roman Catholicism and restoring back the gospel in the simplest form, okay? So I'm not really counting that as an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Because even though it was a move of God, it wasn't an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. So I'm going to start with this. Around the mid-1700s, God began to move with the last day outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And so this is number one. God really poured out His Spirit. Now, when God poured out His Spirit, a lot of people don't realize that there are many other revivals that took place during that time that you don't really know about. We know about Wesley. 
and we know some about Whitfield, and we know a little bit about Edwards and his son-in-law Brainerd that went to the Indians. We know a little bit about that. But when God pours out his spirit, it's a, it's a wide sweeping effect that affects many places that didn't necessarily make it into your history books of revival, you see. And so there was a great outpouring that happened during those days of John and Charles Wesley that, that took place in England and down here in the States. And it was right before our Civil War, and a great move of God took place, an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And God used Wesley and Whitfield and, and uh, Jonathan Edwards and others to help usher in a, uh, a restoration of the gospel and an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And there was an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Okay, people were hit by the power, but collapse. And I've read to you about the accounts of joy and visions and trances and people under the power for long periods of time and all that. The same thing you read all through church history of revival was taking place in the first awakening. So that was number one. Number two, now I'm going to move kind of quickly, is the Great Cambridge Revival, which actually started in Red River and a couple other rivers were named these fellowships that were there. But there was an outpouring of the Holy Spirit that kind of culminated in its greatest expression at Cane Ridge. And then from that, uh, went out back with people to their respective communities where they started gathering and having camp meetings. So those that your particular denomination would have yearly camp meetings, the whole reason they even do that goes back to the days of Cane Ridge. So this was like a second major outpouring of the Holy Spirit that took place. Then after that, 1800, mid-1800s, was the 1857, 1858 revival. Number three, this is called by many the Second Great Awakening, even though some call Cambridge that, but it was the Second Great Awakening, and we know about Finney. We've heard about Brother Nash, his intercessors, and about Finney up in Rochester, New York, and we know about that. But there was such a revival happening during this time that hit the Carolinas. It hit Virginia, down into the south. As a matter of fact, there was such an outpouring of the Holy Spirit that happened among the blacks that Edwin Orr said this. He said that had that revival not happened among the blacks, he said, I believe that probably many of them would have turned away from Christianity because of all the difficulties they were facing just like in Haiti and other areas where they turned to voodoo, they turned to other things. He said, I think that they might have turned to something else. But because the Holy Spirit moved so powerfully in the south among the blacks, he said it brought in a huge harvest among the blacks. Isn't that awesome? So that was the mid-1800s, major outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Then you have Welsh, which I'm going to talk about tonight, the Welsh Revival that was not limited to Wales. It was a powerful move of God. It affected many other places in England, and, and it jumped from Wales down here to Azusa Street and went all over the world. It was a major outpouring. Then you have, about 50 years after that, you have the revivals of the 40s, 50s, into the 60s and 70s, okay? That's number five. And then the sixth is this. It started around the 80s, the Argentine revival. Also, we had some teaching, powerful moves of God through people like Kenneth Hagin and, and Derek Prince leading up into Benny Hinn, Rodney Howard Brown. And it, it, it kind of 
reached like a climax of revival <clears throat> as it was in Toronto and Brownsville, etc. But during those days, it was a worldwide outpouring. I mean, you had the great revival in Africa through Bonki. You had the, the great underground church revival in China. Major move of God swept the world. That's number six, okay? I was blessed to be able to experience that revival firsthand. I was right in the middle of it. I was there at Brownsville. I went to Rodney's meetings, Benny Hinn's meetings, etc. I saw people minister from other parts of the world. And God really moved in my life during those days. But listen, we are at a point here, guys, where we're about to see number seven. And I don't remember if it was William Branham, but a prophetic individual, it might, might have been Smith Wigglesworth, but I think it was Branham, saw that there would be a great outpouring of the Holy Spirit right before the Lord comes. And it would be like all the revival fire that has ever happened from Pentecost down through the ages. It's like all of that fire was kind of gathered into one big ball of fire, and the Lord threw it on the earth, and it exploded, and it was, it was the last great move of God. And he said that move of God prepared people to meet the Lord in the air, and it brought in the harvest and all that. We are about to see that revival right there. And I believe River of Life will be right in the middle of it. And God does things in sevens, and I believe that will be the last outpouring before the Lord comes. All right, so with that said, this is what I want to talk about tonight, and then I'm going to get into a little bit about spiritual warfare, but I'm not going to dwell too much on spiritual warfare tonight. I'm going to deal with it. Lord willing, I'm going to cover spiritual warfare over the next couple of weeks, okay? So in regards to Evan Roberts and the Welsh Revival, Evan Roberts was born June the 8th in 1878. He was born into a Christian home, and his family really loved the Lord. His father, though, was injured in the coal mines. And so Evan, at a very young age, had to start working to help out his family, which probably helped develop some ethic in him about hard work. He loved the Bible. Evan was a little bit different. He loved the Bible so much that he carried his Bible everywhere he went. So when he went to work at the coal mines with all the other heathens that were there, he would take his Bible with him and he would kind of set it off in the coal mine somewhere and he would read it on break and he tried to memorize scripture. As a matter of fact, that was something he was really trying to work on was memorizing portions of scripture. Evan wasn't really interested in sports and amusements and coarse joking and he was so interested in God, even at a very young age, that he would read anything that he could to learn about the Lord. There was a time that a fire spread through the coal mines. It burned up everything except Evan's Bible, which was made of paper. You would think that that would burn up. Maybe God preserved that Bible. I don't know. But Evan really carried it with him, and I think it really meant something to him that God protected it like that. Evan, though, became, as a young man, I want you to understand that God was doing a work in Evan's life while he was a teenager, preparing him because revival broke out when he was in his mid-20s. So he was a very young man. But God was doing such a work in his life that he became a major prayer warrior of the highest order. I mean, he became somebody that was an intercessor, powerful prayer warrior. 
even to the degree, and I'll talk about it here in a moment, of groaning and travailing in the spirit. He was seen by some, though, that didn't understand what God was doing as kind of a mystical lunatic, is what some said. <laughs> because he seemed, I'll give you an example. Like, Evan walked with God. And so he would be somebody that, let's say, you know, we were out here walking around and you were shopping or looking around, and he would kind of be standing here, and he would just kind of be talking, moving his lips, but nobody was there. He was praying. But people would see that. And they, they thought he was kind of a mystical lunatic, kind of weird, but he just simply was walking with the Lord in prayer, kind of like Enoch did, you know? And Evan, one of Evan's friends said about him, he said, you know, we usually would read the Bible and pray together in the evening before putting the lamp out. He said that sometimes I could hear Evan calling and groaning in the spirit. I couldn't understand what his message to God was, but some holy fear kept me from ever asking him. Isn't that interesting? Can you put that on schedule for me? And so there was something deep that God was doing in and through Evan, even as a very young man, that he became a great prayer warrior and intercessor to the degree that there was this groaning and travailing in his spirit that was going on. And if you get a chance, read the story of Lazarus again, where, God, where Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. And if you read that story, Jesus delayed in going so that Lazarus would die and there would be a greater miracle as he's raised from the dead, rather than just another healing. But the Bible says when Jesus came there, and Lazarus was dead, he was in the tomb, and people were weeping. It says about Jesus, listen to what I'm saying here. It says that Jesus groaned. There's something about that Romans 8, 26, 27, 28, right in that area, where it says that there is a groaning too deep for words. Okay, it's something that, just like Evan's friend said, I didn't know what he was saying to God. He was groaning. But he said, I felt a, a holy fear of God. I never asked him about it. There's something about a deep calling unto deep. And Paul said, I'm again in the pains of childbirth till Christ before many. There's something about that groaning. And you kind of saw that with Elijah, the prophet, where he put his head down between his knees and was really in deep travail. And there was a cloud the size of a man's hand that came, remember? And that's obviously prophetic about revival when you see the rain coming during times of drought. So Evan understood that groan, that deep travail, which God has been doing in River of Life for a while. And Evan wrote a friend saying that he was uh, praying that God would baptize them in the Holy Spirit. And so that was something Evan began to really pray about. That's interesting. Soon after this, it, it, he said he started praying about that. Soon after that, he got so caught up in the Lord that literally he had an encounter with the Lord to where it was so powerful that his bed actually shook under the power of God. After that experience, Evan was awakened 
every night around 1 a.m. And the way he described it was in these early hours of the morning, he was taken up into divine fellowship. He would pray for hours as the Lord came to him in the night, and then he would awake again to pray from nine to noon. But these nightly visitations where the Lord would come to him at night in his bed were so deeply important to Evan that he was, a, he was actually afraid to lose that. In December of 1903, Evan knew in his heart that God had planned a great revival for the Welsh community. But you have to understand, put yourself back in this time and think about this. Wells was not a godly place that I, I don't even know of other people really praying for revival per se. I'm sure that there were some, but Evan seemed to be the one that was really travailing here. And Wells was not known for being a, great, a place of great spirituality before the revival. As a matter of fact, there was a lot of things going on. The bars were full. You know, there was prostitution in the land. There was a lot of sin, a lot of immorality. And so Evan asked permission at a church there in Moriah. Small church, he asked, can I start preaching here? And eventually the pastor told him that he could, and he was doing it kind of on off nights. And when he was preaching his first time to minister, he said this. He said, I have reached out my hand and I have touched the flame and I am burning and waiting for a sign. He knew that something was about to happen in Wales. In 1904, it was a year of great struggle for Evan because he seemed to be caught in between this, what God was doing in his life and interceding for revival and what he felt like God expected of him and at the same time, what people expected of him. And so he was kind of caught in between the two. His closest friend, Sidney Evans, attended a prayer meeting, and he came back from that prayer meeting so excited. He told Evan of how he had fully surrendered his life to the work of the Lord. And then Evan, who God had been doing this deep work in him, was at a meeting where a man by the name of Seth Joshua was preaching. Now, Seth Joshua was a powerful man of God. He's very anointed. He was a fiery preacher. And while Seth Joshua was preaching... He made this statement in there. He was talking about the Lord doing a deep inner work in us that only God can do. How many knows that there are some things that only God can do? And Seth Joshua was talking about, and this is what he said in his sermon. He said, Lord, bend us, O Lord. And he was talking about God bending, changing, doing a deep work on the inside. When he said those words, Evan had been in so much prayer in deep intercession, and he had, God had been doing such work in Evan and using him that when Seth Joshua said those words, bend us, O Lord, it did something in Evan. I don't know if you've ever had that encounter or that experience, but I have. I remember being in a service one time where a minister made a statement. I was only in my 20s, and I didn't know he was going to call me out and lay hands and pray over me in that service, but I remember that he, I still remember, this was in probably 1996 or 97, and I still remember the sermon, I still remember the suit the guy was wearing, and I still remember the way he prayed for people. It, it was so powerful, and he said this in his sermon. He said, God is going to call us to pull down every stronghold and press into this last day anointing, and when he said that, it did something in me. 
I felt it. How many know sometimes you can hear something and other times you feel something because God did something in you? Well, that happened to Evan, and I kind of know a little bit about what happened to him here. So Evan was in such a place of burning in his heart that this struck a chord in him deeply. After that, he began to refuse to eat some, and he was in a deep place of groaning and intercession for revival. Even though Evan was not given to visions, he had a vision in October of 1904 where he saw an arm reaching from the moon down into Wells. Evan had been fervently praying for 100,000 souls in Wells. He then stated that he had a vision of Wells being lifted up to heaven, and he stated this. He said prophetically, we are going to see the mightiest revival that Wells has ever known and the Holy Spirit is coming just now, and we must get ready. Now think about it. Nobody else was feeling this. If God was doing something in Evan, and he felt it, but people around him didn't really understand what was going on. Some were kind of concerned for him. Not everybody believed what he felt and what he saw. Even that church in Moriah kind of reluctantly let him preach some. But Evan finally did obtain to, to, uh, permission to preach. And so this was the beginning here. Okay, God spoke to Evan, you must get ready. The Holy Spirit is coming. You need to get ready. So one of the things that Evan did was this. He began to preach some meetings and some people began to come and it, was, it began to be a powerful move of God. And in many ways, kind of a major revival, so to speak, in the lives of those that were there. And... Evan, in this first move of God at Moriah Chapel, a lot of it was the younger generation, but he felt that God was going to touch those people and consecrate them and use them to be prayer warriors and intercessors for the coming revival. That's what Evan felt. And so the first people that came, it was like the first wave of revival was for God to anoint and, and use people to be prayer warriors in what was to come. Isn't that interesting? And so the group began with a, a few consecrated believers who listened intently to Evan's messages. Evan strongly felt that prayer was the key to revival and the key to sustaining revival and that we must also cooperate with the Holy Spirit. Evan felt very strongly that we must cooperate with the Holy Spirit. Now, as revival from there at Moriah Chapel, as revival began to actually really break out in Wells, the services were marked with laughing, crying, dancing, joy, and brokenness and deep repentance, weeping, wailing, deep repentance. And as revival began to explode in Wells, in a relatively short amount of time, political meetings began to be canceled. Soccer matches had to be canceled because there were no longer players on the fields nor fans in the stands, and that was a big deal. That would be like the NFL shutting down now because that was the big thing back then. Theaters closed down due to low attendance. Gambling and alcohol businesses lost their trade Christians of all denominations began to come together. 
As revival continued to spread throughout Wales, bars and movie houses closed down. Former prostitutes started holding Bible studies. People began to repent of their evil ways and right wrongs that were in their life. Even the pit ponies or pit horses that were trained in the coal mines had to be retrained because they only knew cuss words as commands. And they did not, as they got, all the coal miners got saved and they quit cussing, the, the horses would just look at them. And so I had to retrain them. Bibles were sold off the shelves at such a rate it was hard to keep up with. Sinful places seemed to empty and the church began to fill up. The Welsh revival was founded upon four basic points established by Evan Roberts. Number one, to confess and repent of any known sin in your life. And number two, that you would ask God to help you, but search out any secret sins or doubtful things in your life and deal with those two. Deep repentance. Number three, to, to confess the Lord Jesus as Savior openly, publicly, unashamedly. And number four, that you would give God your word, that you would fully obey the Holy Spirit. <laughs> four basic principles that shook a nation. Revival swept through wells, changing the culture. It was so intense that eventually people from Africa, Russia, India, Ireland, Norway, Canada, and Holland began to rush to wells to receive from God. It was during this time that Frank Bartleman back in Los Angeles heard about what was going on in the Welsh Revival. And he, just like Evan Roberts, he felt a burning in him that God wanted to send revival to Los Angeles. And he began, just like Evan, he began groaning and travailing a deep intercession. He began to talk to others and give them pamphlets about the revival in Wales to try to stir up a hunger for revival. And he wrote to Evan Roberts, how can we see revival in Los Angeles? And Evan wrote him back. And because of this correspondence back and forth, they greatly encouraged Frank Bartleman. And it played a role in the Azusa Street revival, which would break out a few years later. The revival in Wales created a worldwide hunger for a move of God. It was not confined to Wales. It moved from Wales to England. It moved to other places. People came, they received, they went back. There was a hunger. But how many knows that the devil's not going to sit idly by? And in this particular situation here, I want to spend some time on some of this warfare. I could skip over this, but I really felt the Holy Spirit wanted me to talk about this because I want you to be ready for warfare. How many knows that the devil is not going to sit idly by and when a major move of God is going on and a harvest of souls is being swept into the kingdom? You're not going to get a free pass from the devil. And so Evan Roberts began to come under severe spiritual warfare. Now, he was a very young man. He was in his mid-20s. And he did make some mistakes, which I'll explain. But again, that was probably because of his age. He was young. He was young in the Lord. But critics, how many knows that every revival has had major critics? 
people used of the devil. And it is a strong thing. It, and I, I don't have time to teach on what witchcraft actually is from a biblical perspective. But witchcraft is strong manipulation, intimidation, control. It is a force to resist the things of God and the earth, okay? I'll have to explain this in the coming uh, sermons. I can't dwell on it for the sake of time tonight. But what Evan went through was not really any different than what the prophet Elijah went through with Jezebel. And I'm going to show you that as we go. Critics began to be mightily used of Satan to publicly come against Evan Roberts in the revival. Some said that Evan was just a hypnotist that was hypnotizing the people because the people were going into trances or caught up in, in heavenly worship or whatever. Others said that he was just an exhibitionist, meaning that he was just like a performer, like a theater, an actor. And some even accused Evan of being an occultist practicing witchcraft because of the supernatural that was going on in the meetings. Now, when people start saying these silly things, how many knows that it's best to just ignore it and keep seeing the move of God? Amen? Don't let it get under your skin. And Evan, though, it, it affected him. And the accusations and the criticism spread like wildfire against the revival. And Evan, though, in his youth, was afraid. This is where he began to miss the Lord, right here. He was afraid of saying anything or doing anything that wasn't perfectly God. Okay, let, let me explain it this way. Before I get up and minister, I pray over the meeting and say, Lord, I'm asking you just to speak through me what you want to say, and I have faith in God to do what God wants to do with an imperfect vessel. You have to have faith in God. Not faith in yourself, faith in God. Evan was not in faith, he was in fear. And he was afraid because of these critics saying all these things or whatever got him thinking about it, but he was afraid, well, what if I don't do something right or what if I don't say something perfect of God? And he, he went into this fear. Fear has torment and fear opened the door for an attack against him. He moved out of faith and into fear. And because of that, it led to discouragement and confusion. Anytime you're dealing with witchcraft, you're dealing with like a Jezebel spirit, how many knows that, I'm going to keep referring back to Elijah, but Elijah was, became, for really no apparent reason, went into a severe discouragement, depression, and confusion. The guy just saw fire fall from heaven. Think about it. He just saw widespread repentance because people saw it and they fell on their face. He just slaughtered like 450 prophets of Baal. I mean, God was on the move, and yet Elijah somehow got struck by this witchcraft, and he goes into a, some kind of a discouragement. You know, listen to him. Uh, Lord, uh, Israel's forsaken you. They, they've killed all your prophets. They want to kill him. He, just, he went into this mindset of confusion and depression and discouragement. And the critics went on to really kind of drive the point home against Evan, against the revival, and they were saying that he was just a bearer of false fire. 
You know, we've heard this type of nonsense in the 90s revivals and on. We've heard the same garbage from the critics of revival out there saying the same thing. A bearer of false fire, and they even called him a profaner. In efforts, Evan, because of what was going on, and he allowed himself to get into irrational fear and discouragement, and because of these things, Evan suffered a physical and an emotional breakdown. Evan began to battle weariness, discouragement, and as I said before, confusion. And in this vulnerable state, Jezebel entered. Now, follow me. This part's important. In 1906, Evan Roberts, this became the downfall because he was already under this oppression of the enemy. God could have helped him out of it. But like Elijah, he didn't snap out of it mentally. He was under such a a tremendous strain. There was a woman by the name of Jesse Penn Lewis who was socially influential and a very wealthy woman. She was from England. She was married. She had a beautiful, large estate. And she called herself a minister, even though her ministry was rejected by the men of God of that time because she had some strange doctrine. And she brought Evan under her wings, so to speak, and let him stay in their guest quarters. But she had ulterior motives. Even though she offered Evan a place, her and her husband did, with guest quarters on a wealthy estate and all that, his needs were met, she also used his name and reputation repeatedly to exonerate her own methods, her own beliefs, and her own teachings. She was using him. One local minister was forbidden by her to have a personal interview with Roberts while gathering information for a book. This minister was really angered at Penn Lewis and because of the complete control she exerted over the revivalist affairs. Convinced that Penn Lewis had destroyed much of Evans' effectiveness, he wrote that she and those working with her had done much towards marring his usefulness. The minister's letters to Evan, like direct correspondence to Evan, never even got to Evan because Penn Lewis would intercept them. Penn Lewis, now listen to this, it gets worse. Penn Lewis now, Evan was in a vulnerable place mentally and emotionally, so Penn Lewis begins to counsel Evan. And she began to question him about the supernatural giftings that operated through him. She determined that Evan's depression was caused because of these spiritual operations. And so listen to this. Denouncing these gifts given to Evan, Penn Lewis lectured that unless he was totally crucified to self, he was deceived, okay, but filled with condemnation. This is what a religious witchcraft will do to people. Filled with all kinds of condemnation and self-doubt, and guilt, and confusion spiritually, Evan finally agreed with Penn Lewis, listen to this, that all the supernatural operations that he had experienced in the great revival of Wells could not have been from God. That's what happens when a Jezebel comes in, guys. 
They will, they will turn you away from tongues. They'll turn you away from revival. They'll confuse you. From that point on, Evan determined from Miss Penn Lewis now, her counseling, listen to this. He determined within himself as a young man that he would no longer trust any moving of the supernatural. And I'll get into this more in just a moment, but this happened to Evan probably around the age of 26 or so in his mid-20s. There was an anointing on him to see a worldwide revival, and he only ministered for about two years. And as you're going to see here in a moment, that was it. Let me just kind of say a side note here. This Jezebel spirit is a serious thing. When God wants to send great revival, there's certain spiritual things that you need to learn, certain dynamics. One of them is Leviathan. So if there's any ministers that are hearing these series, uh, this series, Paying the Price for Revival, I really encourage you, as I've had to do, to, to really study about the spirit of Leviathan because that is an enemy to the glory. And if you want the glory in your church, don't be surprised that Leviathan won't come against you. Leviathan is a serious battle. Also, there's some other things like you're going to need to study about the religious spirit. The religious spirit is a severe attack. But the one I want to talk about, one of the great enemies of revival is the Jezebel spirit. This spirit is not to be taken lightly. It is serious. And if it is allowed to, it will kill a move of God. Just like it did the Welsh revival, and it did against Evan Roberts on a personal level. Nobody will ever convince me that the Wells revival was supposed to end like that. With Evan going into a depression and then a Jezebel coming in and sidelining everything, I don't think so. I think that revival was intended to go farther and accomplish much more. But Jezebel showed up and wasn't challenged. You cannot come in agreement with that spirit. Now, there was a story in the Azusa Street Revival. As the revival was just, Azusa Street was a, a roaring fire. People came from all over the world, major move of God. And as William Seymour was being used so mightily of God, there was a particular lady that was there that she really wanted William Seymour to be interested in her romantically. But he just didn't feel it was God. And she was in charge of the mailing list. Now, here's the important thing during this day and time. This was long before there was an internet, long before there were cell phones and emails and all of that, okay? So for the revival to be public, they had this huge list of names and addresses. And they would send out um, papers about the revival, the Azusa Street papers. And they were going out and they were reaching a lot of people. Well, when William Seymour ended up feeling God was wanting him to marry this other lady, he did so. And they got married. Well, the first lady, out of jealousy and spite, took all of that mailing information and absconded with it. Well, now there could no longer be any papers sent out. And so everybody thought the revival of Azusa was over, and they quit coming. Do you see how Jezebel's manipulation and control hindered the Azusa Street revival as well? Interesting. 
So Penn Lewis, and let's go back to Evan. Penn Lewis exerted so much Jezebel witchcraft control over Evan that he began to refuse visits even from his close relatives. Evan never returned to public ministry again, ever. He only spoke a few times publicly after the revival. One instance, now remember the revival waned in 1906. It started in 1904. It was just two years, okay? In 1928, Evan's father died, so Evan came to attend the funeral. Now, during the funeral, the preacher was eulogizing the father, talking about him, all that. And Evan jumps up. Now, listen to this. It's a really interesting story. Evan jumps up, and he stated, this is not a death. He said, this is a resurrection. He said, let us bear witness to this truth. He was talking about the fact that his father was going home to be with Jesus, okay? But when he said that, listen to what I'm going to read here. A person that was present at the funeral stated that it was like electricity shot through us as he spoke. One person there, listen, this was a funeral. One person there felt, they said that I felt that if he had gone on ministering, that we would have seen another revival start right then and there. Evan, but here's the sad thing about it. That was 1928. By 1931, Evan was almost a forgotten man. And he died in 1951. I want you to think about that. He died in 1951. That was really not all that long ago, if you think about it. The man from 1906 to 1951, almost 50 years, that he did nothing of significance for God. When he died later on in life, he wrote poetry and stuff, but it was kind of a dark, depressing type of thing. Witchcraft had come against Evan Roberts through a Jezebel spirit, just like the prophet Elijah, and it rendered him ineffective. Evan was an incredible man of God. Probably had no idea what was really coming against him. Certainly, he didn't know, especially as a young man, how to actually deal with it. But it all started with something in his life where he began to be in fear instead of faith. And he began to get this weird religious, irrational fear about, am I pleasing God? Am I... Am I good enough? Am I, am I hearing right? Am I doing? He got on all this fear and anxiety and stressed himself out to the point of having a physical and mental and emotional breakdown. And the Jezebel spirit jumped on that. So I'm about to close here in just a second. But Evan, it, to me, it's sad that nothing of significance ever happened beyond that. I've, some people have said, well, maybe God simply just called him to be used for two years. Well, I just personally don't believe that. Well, maybe the Welsh Revival was only supposed to be two years. I don't believe the way that it ended was supposed to be. I don't. I don't believe that that was God ending the revival. I think that was the devil resisting the revival. And unfortunately, just like, um, you know, with, when Elijah was attacked in that way, Elijah never really shook that off of him. Even, even in the wilderness, when he got in the cave, he had eaten angel food. 
And he got there in the cave and God even appeared to him. Remember how God came in the fire and the wind and all this stuff, the rocks broke and everything. And when God appears to Elijah in a still small voice, he said, what are you doing? In other words, God said, what are you doing here? Meaning, Elijah, I've been using you on Mount Carmel. I've been using you to slaughter the prophets of Baal. I'm already doing something. What are you actually doing here in this cave, in the middle of the wilderness, in a depression, when you're supposed to be back in Israel doing what I've called you? What are you doing here? And Elijah sings the same old sad song. They, Israel has forsaken you, Lord. The, they've killed all the prophets. They want to kill me. I'm no better than my fathers. Just let me go home to be with you. The same old sad song he'd been singing now for a while since witchcraft attacked him through Jezebel. And so God reluctantly says, well, I tell you what, Elijah, and I'm paraphrasing this. It's just the way that I see it, Okay. God basically says, I'm paraphrasing here, I love you, Elijah, but I can't use you in this condition. So I want you to leave this place and anoint Hazael, and I want you to anoint Jehu, and I want you to anoint Elisha in your place, and he will do what I originally intended to do through you. And I think in the same way, when witchcraft hit the Wells Revival on Evan Roberts and rendered things ineffective, the Lord jumped from Wales and landed on Azusa Street. And God came on Azusa Street in even a greater dimension in many ways. And I believe that that mantle came on William Seymour like an Elijah to an Elisha. And God had to finish through Azusa what began in Wales. Not to say that revival still wouldn't have come to Azusa. I believe it would have still come. It was a major move of God. I think it was ordained that way. But unfortunately, it was like it couldn't reach its fullness in wells that God intended. So let me, let me end with this. So paying the price for revival. We know that there is a price to be paid. Number one, the price that I hope that I've done a decent job anyway of, of conveying in this series is this, that... The price to be paid is deep intercession and prayer and fasting. Every revival, Edwin Orr is somebody that's a great historian of revivals, okay? And I love this. Edwin Orr made this statement. He said, history is silent about any revival that was not birthed in prayer. True. Every major move of God, you can trace it back to somebody prayed. Somebody got a hold of God. It does not just spontaneously just happen. That, that's not how it works. Somebody prayed and earnestly sought God in deep prayer and intercession until heaven came down and invaded. So there is a price to be paid in deep intercession. The second price to be paid is once revival comes, it's a sacrificial life that you lay down your life and say, Lord, I'm going to seek first the kingdom of God. And you're willing to go without sleep. You're willing to go without things that you would normally be doing because now you're caught up serving the Lord, helping see all these souls saved, helping to see the baby Christians disciple, helping to pray with people on the altar. You're now giving your life for the service of what God is doing. That's the second price of revival. 
And the third prize is major spiritual warfare, as the devil will no doubt try to attack. And so Evan had a lot more to offer than just two years. I think that probably you agree with me with that. The critics of revival shouldn't have affected him like they did, and it shouldn't affect us. But how many knows that you've got to have faith in God? And let me say this, because this is the last thing I want to cover here is about this warfare, but the way that you overcome, what is the armor? You know, I know all the pieces, but what's one of the pieces of the armor? The shield of what? Faith. You see, Evan should have had faith in God to keep him. Faith that he prayed, Lord, I'm asking you to let my mind be in tune with you, that I will speak what you want me to speak, and that I will function the way you want me to, and I believe it and I expect it. And when I step out here, I'm an imperfect vessel, but you will do what you want to do. I have total faith in you. And if he had had that shield of faith up, Jezebel would have never got him into depression. It's because of that weird religious fear thing that some people get on them. It's an irrational fear that, that opens the door to mental and emotional torment, even panic attacks. I mean, just torment this Jezebel, this witchcraft stuff because of a fear. Listen, God wants us to have faith in him. And when I say up here that I am the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus, that has absolutely nothing to do with my righteousness because the Bible says my righteousness is filthy rags. What that has to do with is I have 100% confidence and faith in what Jesus did for me on the cross that has made me the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. And because my mind is renewed in that and I'm confident in that, my helmet of salvation is secure on my head and the enemy cannot get me in a depression about anything. And because I am secure in what the Bible says on my heart, that my heart is calm and undisturbed in the fact that I know that my sins are forgiven, that he was pierced for my transgressions and bruised for my iniquity, and God made him who knew no sin become sin for me, that through him I am made the righteousness of God in Christ. My breastplate is over my heart, and the enemy can't get me into some deep, dark depression. So you've got to have faith in God and what the cross did for you, in the word of God, and that faith will be what keeps you. Now, there will be critics of revival, and we cannot, River of Life, hear me. There will be critics of revival, period, whether it's against River of Life or other places. There always are, there always have been, there always will be. That's just the devil's false prophets, if you will. That's just who they are, okay? There are always critics of revival, and that's what they do. Some of them sell a lot of books because they're critics. Some of them have ulterior motives. Whatever the reason, they're always going to be there. Do not let it affect you. That's between them and God. They're, they are the ones that are choosing to be an enemy of the Holy Spirit and an enemy and a hindrance to what God's trying to do. They're going to be judged severely one day. I wouldn't want to be in their shoes, but that's none of my business, and I'm not even going to worry about it. Let's stay focused on what God has called us to do. Stay focused on bringing in the harvest, on discipling people, on seeing the power of God at work in people's lives, and ignore the critics.
Number two, Satan may try to send Jezebels and Judases and troublemakers. They have to be discerned and they cannot be tolerated and they need to be prayed out. Let me tell you, I learned this a long time ago because my wife and I faced a lot of things, but you cannot come in agreement with these people. You cannot come in agreement and tolerate a Jezebel spirit. And it's better, hear me, it's better to pray them out than have to deal with them. Because if you confront them, and you may still have to, but if you confront them, usually the way these people react is offended. They absolutely, there's no repentance many times. I don't understand that. But these individuals, it's somehow that spirit gets its tentacles, its roots down into their attitude and their emotions. And when you simply try to talk to them and suggest that they have a Jezebel issue and all that, these people will either blow up in a rage, get angry, begin to attack you, and begin to turn it around on you and say, no, 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 you're the Jezebel. And they'll go into a rage, no repentance, no humility. Now they're after you. Or they will begin to weep and cry like a baby and get everybody to feel sorry for them. And goofy people that don't have any discernment feel sorry for them. And they'll use that right there to manipulate people into making the male authority figure look like a horrible, mean ogre, a horrible person. And them, all the while, they're the Jezebel looking like they're some innocent little victim. This spirit has been doing this for a long time and is a master manipulator. And it is almost virtually impossible dealing with those people in the natural, trying to talk to them because they have no interest whatsoever in admitting that they're wrong and repenting. Zero interest in that. They just want power and control. And listen, if you ever deal with those people and you break that control, man, it is going to be World War III break out. So it's better to simply pray and do some fasting and ask God, if you're a minister listening to this, walk through the congregation Lord, you, please keep them out in the first place, but if for some reason you let that person come in, I'm asking you that Jezebels and Judases and those that, that are troublemakers that would damage people's lives, that would try to destroy a church, I'm asking you, Lord, don't let them get their roots down. Don't let them get established. Don't let them get all entangled in anybody's life here at all, but quickly, expose and root them out. Pray them out. And God will send his angels. Usually they'll get offended about something stupid. I just see the angel of the Lord just kind of poking them. <laughs> They're going to get offended about something stupid. Out they go. They're gone. But if you've really prayed about it, they won't be able to take a bunch of people with them like they want to. Number one. Critics, number two, Jezebels. Remember the, the fifth column, the Spanish general on the cliff taking the city beneath him? Another general comes up. How are you going to take the city? He says, well, I got my first column coming from the north, my second from the south, my third from the east, my fourth from the west. 
But he said, I think it's my fifth column that's going to take the city. And the other general says, well, who's your fifth column? He says, the ones that are already in the city. Remember the principle of the fifth column. The devil has these critics and people out there. They're limited in what they can do. But if the devil can get people inside, that's a different story. The Trojan horse. All right, then number three, Satan tries to use modern-day Pharisees among religious leaders that condemn the move of God. Josiah G. Campbell Morgan was a famous preacher of his day at a a, a very well-respected church. But he looked at Azusa Street and said, it's the last vomit of Satan. See, there's this Pharisee type of religious spirit that comes on these leaders that, that want to oppose the move of God. So you have, number one, you have critics. Then number two, you have Satan trying to infiltrate with Jezebels. And number three, then you have to deal with religious Pharisees like Jesus did out there. But how many knows that we must be stalwart toward the Lord and resolute in purpose? If we walk this thing out with wisdom of Scripture obedience to the Holy Spirit, and a strong emphasis on prayer, success and fruitfulness will be certain. I believe in these latter days that God will send his angels to help us. I do. I believe that times are going to call for it, that warfare is going to be so severe, and it already is, that God is going to send angels that will deal with these critics they will keep out, they'll clear out and keep out the troublemakers. They'll, they'll come up against the religious Pharisees. Whatever needs to be done, God's going to send his angels that are going to remove every hindrance to his purpose in the earth. And he will roll back the tides of darkness. If we will pray and if we will trust God, he will roll back the tides of darkness and he will pour out his spirit. And God himself will step in and do what only God can do. Remember what um, Duncan Campbell said? And God stepped down. Suddenly, the Spirit of God began to move. A power broke loose in that barn in Barvis that ended up shaking the whole of Lewis. A power was let loose. God stepped down. He said an awareness of God that gripped the community. That is when God comes. When God steps down, the Holy Spirit begins to move. And people that would have never accepted the Lord before, the harvest will come in. It will yield. And God will send his angels to enforce his purposes. In other words, Jesus said, cast a net on the other side of the boat in a supernatural harvest. Guys, listen, the Lord's going to show up. And the Lord's going to say, hey, cast your net on the other side. And what was impossible before will become possible. We just have to trust God and stay close to him and walk with him. So Lord, I thank you that you are faithful to watch over your word, to perform it. Lord, I thank you for your faithfulness. You alone are worthy of all the glory and the honor, the praise. And Lord, we ask you to rend the heavens and come down the righteous cry out. And Lord, you hear. And Lord, we ask you, as as has been said in the scriptures, rend the heavens, Lord, and come down, Lord. Move in power. Lord, we ask you that the Holy Spirit, that something will break loose here in River of Life, Lord, that like that, that power that broke loose in that barn in Barbara, Lord, that there would be something break loose. 
Lord, that will grip the community and move throughout this nation and the world. And I know there are many others praying as well that they're going to see a revival where they're at. Lord, I believe you want to pour out your spirit on all flesh. Lord, come upon us as you did those men in that barn in, in Hebrides, as you did uh, Edward, Edward Miller and others in the Argentine that prepare that revival. Lord, come upon us, Lord, that we will see something break loose, Lord, that ends up shaking, and hell's kingdom is in retreat, and the harvest yields. Lord, we thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right.